Happy Sunday, everybody. Welcome to California Hunts Radio. My name is Charlotte, and I'm going to be your host for the next hour. We're going to be telling spooky stories today. Well, we're going to be reading out of a spooky book, and then, yeah, spooky stories. All right, it's Happy Sunday, October. Halloween's, what, almost two and a half weeks away. I hope you're getting ready for Halloween. I'm starting to get ready for Halloween. I do Halloween like Disney. I do it in a big way. It's like I do Christmas in a big way. But Halloween's first. Sometimes I wish Christmas came. I could just skip over Halloween because I'm, I'm, I, I have more things going through my head for Christmas already than I do for Halloween right now. But uh, no, can't do that. My neighbors are waiting. I'm a legend. I'm a legend in my neighborhood. So my neighbors, my neighbors are, are quietly awaiting what I'm going to do. So it should be interesting. And of course, I'll let all you know what I do. <laughs> Halloween night. I won't be here Halloween night. We got a we got a great show about UFOs coming on Halloween night because that's my night off. But anyway, um, I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento. We're 45 strong up and down the state. We also have branches of this team, subsidiaries, I guess you want to call them, in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. So if you have any issues there, look me up. We're all, the, the team is on Facebook. The team is on TikTok. The team is on uh, Twitter. The team is on, well, I'm on Instagram at under Ghosty Gal. So you can find us anywhere. Anywhere you'll find us. And I'm also looking for followers on Ghosty on, on, it's on Ghosty Gal. Yeah, it's Sunday. I'm also looking for followers on Instagram, and that would be under Ghosty Gal. Real simple, all lowercase. G-H-O-S-T-Y-G-A-L. If you're watching tonight from Facebook or listening, rather, uh, go ahead and you like what you hear, please hit that follow button. We I try to read a ghostly ghost-themed book every Sunday. Preferably the stories are somewhat true stories of, of uh, ghostly uh, activity. You know, you can't prove this stuff, but like like tonight's book with, with, with Anna, uh, she uh, writes from people's accounts. So it's somewhat true, right? Right? You know, allegedly true. I'm a newspaper reporter. Allegedly true. That's the story. That's what we use. So I try to do that. What I'm looking to do in November, uh, just around Thanksgiving time, is I also interviewed Someone, and I can't remember who it is, I have to go back through my papers, but this person had written books on the Krampus and other things related to Christmas, and she, and she had some ghostly stories for the holiday season. So I'm looking to get a hold of her and see if we can get permission to use the book. You just can't read a book online, guys. You have to get permission to do it, either from the publisher or if somebody is self-publishing, you can do it that way. But you just can't start reading online, unless it's a really, really old book like Dracula or something. You have to get permission to do this stuff. Otherwise, you get in big trouble. It's like anything else, copyright issues. So uh, that's what I do. I try to find you know, these, these, these independent uh, authors and stuff that I have interviewed on the show and read their stuff. And that's what we've been doing. And right now, I've asked Anna about another book she's written. And hopefully, we get the okay for that uh, by tomorrow or the next day so we can start that next week. Otherwise, we'll have something completely different. Anyway, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm giving people time to get into the uh, room or get settled. I mean, I can't. I, I can see the people that are like in actually in the room. I can see you. Know, I can see there's three people online. You don't have to be in the chat room, but I can see you're online. But there's also people that are just like out in the fringes listening in the world, like the people watching from YouTube out in the fringes. You don't even have to like watch me do this. I wouldn't want to watch me do this because what do I do? I stare. I stare at the screen. And in this case, because the book is via PDF. I'm reading directly off the computer screen. So, you know, it's one of those things. Normally, if it was 
through you know through um, Kindle, I'd be reading off my tablet. But this one came through PDF. So hopefully the next one will be via Kindle. So I'll tell you ahead of time, the spotlight drives me insane at contact lenses. And anybody that's had contact lenses knows that, you know, tons of bright lights coming at you is is a no-no. Because you get, it gets, you know, it just blows up in your face. So what I will do is I want to turn my spotlight off. So you're going to see me go dark, literally go dark. Even though I have the back lights up for the, for the you know, for the back. I'll show you right now. Here, let's look at it right now. Give me an idea. See that? So you can still see that because I have the back lining up. But uh, that's how I have to read because it's off the computer screen. So we'll be doing that during the during this reading. And like I said, I'm, you know, I might check the chat room. I may not because it's hard for me to go back and forth because it is a PDF and, I'm, and I have to switch screens on it. And I don't do a double screen because I'm blind and I have to see what I'm reading. So we're going to do that. The other thing tonight is that we're coming to the end of this book. We're starting at chapter 55. So we may end early tonight, but um, it depends what time we end. I can tell a couple ghost stories from the gold country. There's always ghost stories up in the mountains up here. Lots of ghost stories. Lots of ghost stories here in Sacramento, too. Our old town. So I I have stuff I can tell, you know, to get us just to get to, to get us to that full hour. So I'll do that tonight as well if we run out of time. Okay. All right. So uh, I hope everybody's had a great weekend. Uh, we're coming into another week. Again, we're getting closer and closer to Halloween, which means 31st, what at midnight, boom, the holiday season. How about the stores? Christmas already in the stores. Wow, 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 wow. Of course, I'm one to talk. My, my, my main Christmas tree is up all year. But that's a dedication thing for my mother. Because she loved, she loved Christmas trees. So that's been up all year. All I have to do is turn the lights on that one. But I also have a, I also have a secondary tree I have that I put up every year. Not to mention what I do out front, just like I do for Halloween. I go from one to the other. So I slide from one holiday right into another. But uh, our book, the book we're reading, Anna Maria Manalo's book, great book. If anybody's ever collected antiques or anything like that, you know, that'd be fun to know. I mean, you guys that listen to the show, there's a lot of you around the world that listen to the show. Anybody that listens to the show, have you ever purchased antiques that that came with that came with an unwanted guest, or even a wanted guest. I have. I collect antiques. I used to collect antiquities, and when I mean antiquities, I'm talking Greek, uh, Greek and Roman. And I a lot of my stuff goes from BC, you know, BC times. And I ended up bringing something to the house that I was unaware of. Luckily, it wasn't an aggre anything aggressive, but I did bring something home with me. All these collections, you know. So needless to say, I don't collect antiquities anymore. But for a long time, I did. But like I said, luckily, it wasn't anything like what, you know, we're reading about in this book. I lucked out. But there are times when, you know, <laughs> you get antiques. But I know there's furniture in this house, even now, that uh, had attachments to it. So there's, there, there, there's, there's, there's one piece in my dining room, my, my, my dining room table that has an attachment to it. But luckily, that's not a bad attachment, okay? But I always tell people my house is active. I grew up in an active house. So we could talk about that. We'll talk about that after. I, if we run out of time, we'll go into more detail on that. But uh, this house is active. Okay. Anyway, where we left off was, I believe this was a hutch. Now, let me go to the page real quick so we can get a quick update on where we left off before we start. So let me pop over there. So here I go. I'm popping to the other page. So if I'm looking at the screen weird, that's why. Okay. So, uh, these, the, uh, again, this was an antique shop 
that got a hold of an item that uh, that sold. But something's going on with this item that people don't realize. And I believe it's some kind of hutch or a disc. Let me look real quick and then I go back. Excuse me. My allergies. I don't mean to snort into the mic. So this was an item that was purchased via antique shop or donated to the antique shop. And um, it's had some things going on with it. And uh, even the, the people that have the item have noticed weird things have been going on in their shop. But somebody happened to buy it. And their son is, had volunteered or got talked into picking this thing up because it has to be transported like five hours away. So there's so the so the owner's son had picked this thing up. Let me go back to the uh, screen for you guys. So the owner's son had picked this thing up, and he got in the back of I guess a pickup truck, and he brought he brought his girlfriend from college, and they decided to like hang out in this cabin, make it like a weekend. Drove back, picked the item up, realized they forgot something at the cabin, and now they're back at the cabin because she needs to pick her stuff up. But they've got this haunted thing in the back of this truck. It's a I think it's a hutch. I don't remember. I'm sorry, my mind is so much going on all the time. And that's where we're at now. They're at the cabin and they're, they're, they're picking up what she needs. All right. So let's take off from there and uh, start in Chapter 55. Anna Maria Manalo, my good friend. And uh, here we go. Off those lights. We're going dark. Oh, yeah. And a quick reminder. If you're watching and listening from Facebook or listening from Facebook, please hit that follow button if you like what you hear. Because I'm looking for followers. You know, we're trying to do a build up here for trying to do a good thing here, you know, do, do a build up, get more followers, put more shows on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you're watching from YouTube, same thing, hit that subscribe button. There's a little ghost, that, a little tiny ghost. I didn't realize how small it was until I popped it up on my screen the other day, but there's a little tiny ghost with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. Click on that. It'll subscribe you to all our videos. We have about 450 videos on different topics, and I think you'll find something that you like. In fact, there's a couple, two or three or four different books there, too, you can check out, including the one written by Rebecca Pittman on Lizzie Borden. So that was a really cool book. Complicated, but good. All right. So here we go. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Off we go. Remember, we're, we are now going to the cabin. Chapter 55. I coasted onto the dusty pavement of the cabin. Vicky dashed in with keys in hand and was out in a few minutes later with her luggage. She stowed it on the floor of the truck's cab, mindful of safety that we might have to stop at some point for a toilet or a, and a snack. She wanted everything within reach without having to exit the cab. We took 104 down, a slim load, encountered little traffic, and then merged onto Route 116 to catch the large intersection where I would take a left on 44. The problems began as soon as we turned onto Route 44 and traveled just a few miles down the road, which would take us across to Connecticut. Vince's truck, a Toyota, began to sputter. It was only two years old, from what I recall, and he took care of it like it was his first baby. I coasted the truck I coasted to a stop and noted the mile marker as other vehicles sped by. It was still early in the afternoon, but I wanted to make sure we got help if we needed it. Not that handy with engines, I popped the hood, nevertheless, hoping to spot nothing, hoping to spot nothing amiss, or if there was something obvious enough that I could handle it. I inspected the engine and noted the vehicle's newness, gauging from the cleanliness of the carburetor. A bit of dust here and there, but nothing major that you would find when an engine has seen a lot of miles. I touched the hoses, making sure nothing was loose, which I had seen Dad do. I pulled 
the dipstick, checked the oil, and looked around, searching for the water level. All seemed in order. I decided if it didn't turn when I tried, I'd walk to the closest diner for a payphone. I looked up, and there was a Cumberland Farms marquee up ahead. What happened? Vicky asked. It's okay, I think. I turned the ignition, and the engine seemed smooth. I re-entered the road and drove. Cumberland Farms had a few cars parked, then a small diner with bright neons in the daytime. I kept driving. I was hoping we'd stop soon, ventured Vicky, clearing her throat. You hungry? No, I need some water. Vicky started coughing. Just wait a sec. I reached behind me where my pack was and realized it was on the flatbed, snug with the bookcase. Vicky coughed a dry cough. She brought out a napkin from the store and began blowing her nose. You feeling okay? Um, no. I think I might have caught a cold. I flicked on the turn signal, seeing a small farm, seeing a small, small, blah, seeing a small farm stand in a barn of sorts. I had just seen signs to Putnam, a small town in, on the Connecticut border. Vicky stepped out as soon as I put the truck in park by the barn, hacking. She wheezed, turning red. Get some tissues, too. Got allergies? She shook her head. I dashed off to the barn. A guy opening the door ahead of me. Vegetables, fruits, the fresh scent of plants, and hay. I surveyed the area and finally approached an older woman wearing an apron. Water? I asked. She pointed to a glass front refrigerator adjacent to a rotating shelf with snacks and tissues. I grabbed two bottles of water, some tissues, and handed the woman some cash. It's 75. It's 275. Let me get this up. See, that's why I messed it up. Okay. It's 275. That's fine. I handed her more bills, not bothering to count how much I'd given her. When I got outside, Vicky was kneeling on the ground, hacking. It seemed she was trying to expel something from her throat. Drink it slowly. I sat down, I sat down near her, holding the bottle. She grabbed it, drank, and then vomited. I touched her forehead, and she seemed feverish. Let's get back in the truck. I helped her in and pressed the tissues in the palm of her hand. I was back on 44 in record time, hoping she could hold on until she could get medicine and maybe some hot soup. I floored the truck, trying to make it to, 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 to Darien by late afternoon. Miles went by. I observed trees changing, the leaves now more on the ground than a few weeks ago. The sky was a deeper blue as I sped by. I must have been daydreaming as I drove. Then I realized Vicky had been very quiet. When I looked over, she appeared to be shivering. Silence. I look at my rearview mirror, trying to think. I had the heat on, according to the dashboard. I'm cold. Look at this. Hang on a second. It just went down. Just give me a second. Let me go get it. And all right, give me one second. We just had an issue with it. I'm going to have to download the PDF, so give me a second. Okay. Shouldn't take too long to get to where I was, so just bear with me. It's the first time that's happened. <laughs> Anything that can go wrong will. Okay. Let me do this. Okay. Is there any way to get to the page where I was at really quick? Oh, yeah, here we go. Hang on a second. We'll get right there, and I'll be with you in a sec, guys. Bear with me. It's going to be one of those days, huh? Okay, go. Okay, where are we? 
Okay. Okay, jump chapters. Just give me a second. So sorry about that, you guys. Okay, let's get in here now. I'm going to make this big enough so I can read it. Okay. All right. We're back. Sorry about that. I pulled the truck over on the shoulder and realized we just crossed 395, a major turnpike, which meant we were already in Connecticut. I pulled the blanket off the flatbed of the truck. I was trying to think what Vicky had eaten and whether eating at my parents' store was a good idea after their discussion of sick tourists. By this time, it was past four. I was beginning to think of stopping to rest. I know you're not feeling well. Do you think, of, you think stopping to have soup and something to eat might help? I was thinking of the grill up ahead. She shook her head. I touched her forehead, and she was definitely burning up. I turned the motor and slid back in the back on uh, back on the macadam. You think you can drink more? No. I kept driving. Crap. We passed the grill. I had to pee. I just had to think about what she ate and what was making her sick. Whatever it was, she was more susceptible than me. I coasted onto a broad shoulder when I spotted a wooden shack marked toilet. A rest stop. I spotted a sign. We were now driving through part of Nachung State Forest. I touched Vicky, who appeared to be slumbering under the blanket. She was still shivering, even with a coat on. I walked to the edge of the tarmac, looked back at the truck, deliberating. I rushed towards the toilet and realized I hadn't locked the truck. I turned back and opened the door. Vicky was hacking away. I'll be right back, okay? Lock the doors. She nodded, eyes bleary. I slammed the door and bolted for the men's room. Chapter 56 I came out to find Vicky standing outside, wrapped in the blanket, staring at the flatbed of the truck. Her cough had subsided, but she had a Kleenex pressed to her mouth as she eyed the flatbed. Ready? What's up? She turned to me and pointed at the bookcase. Kleenex pressed to her mouth. The bookcase, bookcase, which I had laid flat, with the glass door up and covered in blankets, was uncovered. The ropes, which had secured it to the blankets, somehow were loosened and tied. I approached the bed. Someone had definitely untied the ropes, and the glass, the glass panes were exposed. I turned to Vicky. Did you? She began coughing in the act of trying to talk. Why would I? Who was out here while I was in the toilet? I don't know. Does that mean there was someone? No, I don't think so. Why did you come out of the truck? I had to get some air. Can't you see I'm sick? I'm trying to stretch. You said you were cold. She darted a hostile look my way and began coughing and sputtering. You came out and got the blanket covering it, she indicated. No, that's a different one. Well, I didn't touch your antique. I'm sorry. She paused to take a breath. Is that all you care about, that damn bookcase? What? Don't be like this. I approached her, but she recoiled. I pulled the blanket from the sides of the bookcase and wrapped it over the glass panes as before. A stiff wind blew the trees around us as if bidding us to leave. An ominous cloud threatened rain. We need to get inside, please. Vicky pulled out another tissue and covered her mouth as she clambered into the truck. I covered her with the blanket, and she stiffened. I need to get this to Jean. That's all. Coughing. I jumped back into the driver's side and turned the ignition. Vicky opened her door and jumped out. 
Where are you going? Vicky darted towards the restrooms. I clambered out and locked the truck, following. The trees around us were swaying as if they were about to break. In my mind, I thought, oh no. The bookcase will be soaked by the time Jean gets it. I watched Vicky run across to the back of the restroom shack. I turned back to the bookcase. A light flashed. I looked up, and the sky appeared darker. Lightning. I scurried past the truck's tailgate. I'm sorry, I scurried, pulled the truck's tailgate down, hoping Vince kept a plastic tarp in the bed. I walked around the truck searching, looking in, touching the sides for, for some compartment I had hopefully missed. The storage bin towards the cab. Locked? It opened. Art supplies, brushes, and cans. Vince's art supplies. He kept them there for when he drove to the beach to paint. Son of a fortune. Wouldn't he keep a tarp to cover his canvases? Something blue peered back at me from under the bookcase. I clambered up and almost fell onto one of the glass panes in my rush. Reaching down, there it was, still folded neatly. Thank you, Vince, I said out loud. Unfolded and wrapped. Then the wind blew and the tarp slid off, almost blowing away. Shit. I bolted for the nearby wood. Rocks. I scurried and grabbed some sizable ones and realized Vicky was still in the restroom. The tarp was sailing my way, as if after me. I darted after it as the wind turned, almost missing the edge, the bright blue a stark contrast against the darkening forest. I tripped on the tarp's edge as I ran. The rocks fell onto the ground. Gathering them, I grasped the tarp as the wind blew again. I eyed, my, I eyed the restroom, willing Vicky to emerge. Where was she? Back to the truck bed. I climbed spreading the tarp over the bookcase and securing the heavy rock to the sides. Then I made for the restroom's yards away. Fifty-seven. Vicky? I walked around, found the door marked women, and banged on it. Vicky? Silence. I looked around, then opened the door. Three stalls and the acrid smell of urine assailed me. All the steel doors were open. I emerged, surveying the wood around me. Wind chilled me to the bone, moisture accumulating with it. Where are you? Wind blew, almost singing. The coal began to leach around my parka. Vicky. I spotted her, weaving through the wood, approaching. Her coat's hoodie over her head, still wrapped in the blanket. She looked up and darted towards me. I was beyond relieved. Why did you? There was a creepy woman in there. What? I'm getting in. I tell you, I'll, I'll tell you when I get back in the truck. Something clanged open like a door. I opened my door, checked Vicky's, and slammed mine shut. I drove through the park and then realized I hadn't checked to see if the tailgate was secure after I put the tarp on top of the bookcase. Perhaps that was what clanged open. We were now almost out of the park, and the isolation of the road had a sense of loneliness instead of serenity. Rain descended, thrumming on the cab's roof. I parked, exited the truck, and ran to the tailgate. It was down, and the bookcase could have slid right off onto the road. Strange. I latched it and secured it. Tissues littered the back, but I made no comment to Vicky, as she might think I was accusing her of littering, too. We drove the rest of the way to, Harf to, Har to Harford, through a rest stop, and finally towards Fairfield County. Vicky remained quiet the rest of the way. I stopped to get dinner, and she shook her head, sullen and quiet. I drove on. 
I parked in front of her parents' house, and she quickly grabbed her overnight bag and made her way towards the front door without pausing to say goodbye. Are you going to tell me what happened in the restroom? I yelled as she stepped out to as I stepped out to accompany her, hoping to explain our delay to, our, to her parents. She kept walking, reached the door, opened it, and shut it. Chapter 58, George. Jean called the store and exclaimed how the bookcase looked great in her living room. She had polished it, got the glass clean, and took a picture with some figurines inside the glass cases. She would wait until her friend Beth's birthday was close before surprising her with it. Meanwhile, she would enjoy looking at it. We were relieved despite the setbacks. We were sorry, we were relieved despite the setbacks Trey had en route to her house. Trey would not discuss the trip back, which Eileen and I gathered was not pleasant. He would not discuss Vicky, and we told him she seemed like a very nice and decent girl. She got sick on the ride back, he said. He too had developed a cough, and as the days progressed, we wondered if his child asthma had returned from the way he sounded. Then, a day after he had dropped off Vicky and finally unloaded the bookcase at Jean's house, he was back to his old normal self. He called Vicky to check in on her, hoping she was willing to talk. And she had miraculously recovered as well. No lingering coughs, sneezes, or sore throat, let alone a fever. Perhaps they were both exhausted and stressed. Trey was juggling a heavy workload as a new chemistry major, having switched from art. So Eileen and I worried he was getting run down. We didn't even know he could do that in his sophomore year at the university, but apparently he could. He also had long hours at our store almost every weekend, which was his idea of learning the business, just in case med school did not become a reality. However, we thought he was working too hard, drove too much, so it explained how he quickly got sick. Something was going around the campus, and we almost opted out of chamber, a chamber music concert at Brown, but we discovered the flu had not reared its ugly head yet on campus. So what was going around, Eileen asked me. I didn't know. A different strain. We met up with two other couple with two other couple friends who worked for Brown and surmised that somehow the cops were confined to the shops in our area. Actually, only in our store, they laughed. We laughed it off until the two elderly ladies who had entered our store while we were having lunch with Trey and Vicky came down with a bug. The woman with a bouffant hairstyle, called to tell us, some, tell us something, made them sick at our store right after, the, right after their visit. I felt so bad I offered them both a hefty discount on some Royal Staffordshire China tea and cup sets if they chose to come back. It was all I could do. She asked if some of the antiques were imported from some far-off country where there might have been some form of illness traveling about. I honestly couldn't offer her an answer. Strangely, as soon as some of the inventory was sold, the coughing and tissues on the floor and tables of the shop disappeared. I just didn't know how to explain it all. Explain it in all the years of the business, but they must have carried some virus or bacteria on them. Jean's bookcase happened to be one of those that were sold the same week. We never heard of inanimate objects carrying diseases. Then the worst happened. I got another call from Jean about the bookcase. Chapter 59. Trey watched Jean at her stove. A huge wolf with six burners. It was only 4 p.m., but she was already busy preparing a lavish dinner for a small gathering of friends. She had invited Trey to stay as he had just run an unexpected errand for her again when he dropped off the month's rent. 
buying some spices at the local Indian store. She didn't take cooking lightly and spent hours like she did with antiques, searching for recipes on the internet and attempting to copy dishes from restaurants she frequented when in New York City. She didn't have to stray far to find excellent and authentic foods as a foodie. She had a penchant for mixing the right ingredients and made dishes that made dinners with friends a pleasure until she got the bookcase. As Trey's landlady, who lived in the next town, Trey and his roommates were kind to her as she lived alone. The boys even drove the woman to New York to pick up pastries as she was frustrated over her little community of neighbors, whom she described as pedestrian for their lack of sophistication in baked goods. Jean was not really an elitist in that sense, but was just a picky connoisseur when it came to authentic foodstuffs. On this particular day, Jean was in her kitchen preparing another lavish meal for a small group she expected for dinner who loved Indian cuisine. Trey had been watching her use the spices he had just bought for her, and she was showing him how she used them for the lamb roast that was now in the wolf's, in the wolf's kitchen. Then she began to feel unwell, asking Trey for his assistance in chopping up the okra and eggplant from the side dishes. It had only been a few days since Trey had dropped off the antique bookcase when she began to feel dizzy and feverish. At her request, Trey darted up the stairs to her medicine cabinet and watched her push a thermometer into her mouth. She told him she had just gotten over the flu, but now... Her throat began to get scratchy again. Trey watched signs that were now becoming too familiar. He was hoping she would cancel. Jean reached over her large, well-appointed stove, a study in pale blue, to shut off the gas oven, which housed the curried rack of lamb she had so lavishly prepared. She had stressed over the meal, from what Trey saw, and was indeed on the edge of canceling when her best friend Beth, the town's librarian, called. I got a surprise for you. Oh, tell me. Then it won't be a surprise. I have to warn you and Dean that I just developed a cough. Do you have a fever? She looked down at the thermometer. Not sure, but I think I might be up for a late evening. That's fine. Dean's tired anyway. Did you call the Cunninghams? Not yet. I'm really sorry about this. Jean looked up at Trey, signaling the dinner was off. Trey shrugged, put his coat on. Place the, ch place the change from, from the spices on the counter. Glad to go home. The roast will keep until you get better, added Beth on the phone. I'll take a rain check on the surprise. I might as well tell you I have, I have one thing for you, too, but it's for your birthday. Trey didn't mean to eavesdrop on the conversation, but was feeling well again and now felt he could have passed on the flu to his landlady. Vicky had definitely caught something, but he was happy she had recovered in 24 hours. Trey at Trey added as he opened the back door of the kitchen. It's, all, it's only a 24-hour bug, he winked. Jean coughed, smiled, and nodded as he left. Chapter 60 It wasn't a 24-hour bug. Jean was not getting better this time from her cold. It was pneumonia. She called from her hospital bed. The doctors prescribed a regimen of medication and confined her for a few days. I breathed a sigh of relief. Glad that it was caught in time, but it wasn't over. In the interim, while Jean was in the hospital, Beth was house-sitting, as Jean was a single woman who was divorced with no children, and her home had a lot of expensive items, including antiques. Beth's account, clarif Beth, Beth, Beth's account clarified for us finally what might be the string of infections that began with the tissues in the store I had found on the floor. While closing that day, a phantom hand touched mine. 
Beth had herself and her husband tested for TB, as she felt the signs of the sudden flu pointed to something more infectious. They were both negative. Upon arrival at the house, which she later disinfected as a precaution, she noticed a lingering smell of illness, which she could not describe, but had experienced when her own mother was dying. Hours later, as was customary for Beth, she settled down with books to read from the library and a basket of knitting after doing the cleaning. She also brought an antique book, which was the surprise she'd had for Jean before the dinner party had been had to be canceled. Unbeknownst to her, Jean had purchased the barrister's bookcase, now temporarily in Jean's living room, as a gift for her upcoming 50th birthday. After wrapping the antique book and placing a card on it, Beth left it on top of the bookcase and went home to her own house. Monday, she returned after working at the library and decided to make dinner for her husband, Ron, on Jean's stove, which she loved. Again, she disinfected, wondering where the acrid smell of sickness was coming from. By the time she was done, exhausted, she finally cooked as her husband watched, marveling at Jean's high-end kitchen. At the end of dinner, Beth dialed Jean's room number at the hospital to check in. As they were talking, she mentioned how she loved cooking on her large stove, wiping it spotless as they talked. Ron walked by and waved goodbye as he exited via the kitchen door. Beth distinctly remembered waving back, wondering why he was already leaving. Satisfied, Jean was on, satisfied Jean was on the mend, and x-rays revealed she did not have tuberculosis based on a negative teen test for the week before. Beth settled into her knitting in the family room. She had just sat down and then heard her name being called. It sounded like Ron, her husband, had returned. She walked over to the living room. Oh, you're back. Back? I've been here waiting for you. Puzzled, Beth glanced at the hallway and towards the kitchen. I saw you wave and go out the kitchen door. Ron just stared at her, a book in his hand. I've been here all along listening to you talk on the phone. Beth looked at the old book in Ron's hand, bound and ancient. She immediately recognized it. I got it from Jean's bookcase, an antique first edition. Dickens, Ron clarified. The barrister's bookcase was in the living room, near where Ron sat on a high-backed chair, adjacent to a fireplace. The top flyleaf was open. The shelf, like the other shelves, empty save for a few figurines. You unwrapped it? Oops. The book was wrapped? That's my gift to her, remember? I found it in the bookcase. Why did you unwrap it? It wasn't wrapped. Beth put out her hand and Ron handed her the book. I have to wrap it again now. Then he began coughing, almost turning red. Are you okay? He didn't stop. Beth dashed back to the kitchen and returned with a glass of water. Ron drank, handed the empty glass back, and stood. Here. Beth took the glass and happened to glance down at the floor and recognized the card she had purchased with the wrapping. Very puzzling. If you didn't unwrap my gift, then who did? Ron looked around, searching the room. Don't know. Beth sighed and stuck the card inside the book. With that... He walked down the hall and turned at the front door. I don't think you should stay overnight. Beth placed the book on the coffee table next to her basket of knitting. She walked back to the living room where the bookcase stood and gingerly shut the glass door backing away. She turned back. I'm leaving. Ron reached for the doorknob. Dear, yes. Are you sure you didn't pass, you didn't pass me in the kitchen? Why would I lie about that? I could have sworn. Come back with me and bring the book. 
Is something the matter? There, Ron pointed at the bookcase. Okay, you're making me uncomfortable. Ron began coughing again. Look. The bookcase's top glass door was open again. Let's go, Bess said, bolting towards the door and passing Ron out the door. Keys? Oh, sorry. Beth re-entered, grabbing the keys from a plate in the foyer and walked out. You left the book, Ron added. Beth ran back in, exited this time with the antique book and her basket of knitting. Beth locked the door. When she turned the bolt, Beth distinctly heard a woman coughing through the door. She turned to Ron with a look. No one's there. Go. They dashed to the street. Chapter 61 Beth told Jean what Ron had experienced in the house and what she thought was Ron passing her by the kitchen. They both heard the coughing when they, lo when they locked Jean's door. The next day, the couple returned together and found Jean's handkerchiefs on the floor around the living room near the bookcase, as if someone was sick and neglected to pick up after themselves. This time, the top flap of the bookcase was shut. Jean called from the hospital, asking about the origin of the bookcase. I had, regret I had regrettably no history on who was the previous owner or the one before that. I made a point of visiting her to explain how we'd acquired it. I went through the process of acquisition, such as who authenticated the bookcase and how we appraised it. There was no doubt it was made in the early 1900s, 1910 to be exact. And the imprint of the marker was unmistakable on the shelves. What troubled her was the line of people who claimed to become sick when the piece of antique was around, including herself. Eileen and I visited at length with Trey, getting more details of his difficult trip on the way back to Connecticut with Vicky. Sudden coughing and a fever seemed to be connected to the antique and the bizarre appearance of tissues. So strange were the events that we didn't know whom to call or consult. I called the other new bookcase owners, wondering if the store needed to be disinfected. It was a series of difficult, difficult calls, as we didn't want anyone thinking we were harboring some disease at our store. No one corroborated our experience. The other pieces of furniture were fine and were tastefully elegant, as some of the new owners put it. Then Steve, our hired truck driver, explained how the bookcase ended up with a dent after he overheard our conversations at the store when we were attempting to make good on what we needed to do about the bookcase. His account made us realize that the bookcase needed to be with its original owner, but it wasn't possible, as it came into our hands only because it was for, only it was because for sale from the estate of the deceased. The deceased. Steve's story was brief, but no less bizarre, if not downright creepy. After securing the bookcase among other antiques in the back of the truck, he emerged from the back and hopped down to the pavement. He was about to light a cigarette with his hired, with his hired hand to take, to take a brief break. He turned to pull down the panel door when he distinctly heard someone cough inside the truck's container. He turned to peer in, but no one was there, of course. He pulled the sliding door down and turned to secure it, then lit up. This time they both heard a cough issue inside the container. The younger man laughed nervously. He unlocked the truck hopped inside and checked, thinking someone was stowing themselves in the container. Strange. They drove through Providence when someone honked at them and told them the back was open. Steve stepped out, ran to the back of the truck in the center of traffic and discovered the door was halfway open. Inches from the edge was the bookcase. It had somehow made its way to the back of the truck, though it was tied securely to the walls of the truck. One side had hit the door, and that was how the dent was made. 
Jean would not return to her house until it was removed from her home. Eventually, Beth volunteered to take it to the library and see if they could store it in the attic of the building. Beth appeared to be the only one who didn't get sick from being near the bookcase. That was when Jean finally disclosed it was a surprise gift for her 50th birthday, which was coming up. Graciously, Beth took the bookcase out of Jean's home before her birthday with Trey and Vince's help. The short trip was uneventful, and they carried it up to Beth's attic up in the cedar shingled home she shared with her husband. Ron didn't want it in the living areas of the home at all, as it had also infected him while he was in Jean's home. There, the barrister's bookcase sits in darkness, alone. Conclusion Haunted houses, facilities, cemeteries, people and objects. What do you have in common? What do they have in common? In all my years of hearing accounts, compiling stories from all over the New England states and later all over the globe, I noticed similarities in these hauntings. In the case of the wing chair I purchased long ago, the young woman must have died suddenly under tragic circumstances. We pine, we crave, and we covet. When we do finally possess whatever it is we desire, we hold, the, we, we hold on to them until life somehow is cut short. When that happens, we can't let go. And in some cases, as I believe this case to be, the deceased needed to hold on to her possessions. We see a soul disembodied, holding on and even coming, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> even coming with a vengeance to reclaim what was hers. For Augustina, the urn was part of a collection, something merely for show in her growing, in her growing, Genosiri, I'm sorry, for showing her growing Genosiri. However, there was an unfinished life within who passed in violence. The urn came with a guardian, one who made the family aware that the spirit needed closure, and it finally got that. Once the rite was complete, the guardian never appeared again. For Sam, the lithograph unraveled his weaknesses. His ethnic, his ethnic identity in crisis came to consciousness. The sense of sudden loss and inexplicable betrayal triggered psychic chaos. It loosened his mind from its moorings. Sam needed validation for what he experienced in the land of the incredible. In the end, that validation he craved came in the form of a woman who defied his own, his own rigidity in nature. For Valentina, the move to a larger store tucked farther away from the, from the familiar was too unfamiliar. It was horrifying. In changing her worldview, she discovered that her husband was more open to a new experience than she believed him to be capable of. By keeping a Pandora's box in the back room, which held a coveted set of items, they unwittingly invited a spirit who died painfully and remained addicted even after death. George and his son Trey thought they would be transported back to an era where consumption, tuberculosis, took the lives of young, took the lives of the young and vibrant. In that treasured bookcase was the energy of a young woman who loved books and kept them protected in a barrister's bookcase. She wanted them to know how she suffered, touched, touching anyone who dared to take or transport the bookcase with her illness. When we pass into the next dimension, we pass with only our spirit. However, a sudden and fatal tragedy can stop us from gaining that insight. We know we can only take our memories and relive the lives we lived. To learn and hold dear those who loved and loved us, and to move forward into the everlasting life we so deserve, knowing we are who we are, and the world beneath us is richer because of it. Because of us.
But for those cut off brutally in youth or in the prime of their lives, hanging on to what they know can be their last hope of living fully. Thank you for reading this book. As a bonus, the following pages contain a few pages, a few chapters, of a book in progress. This true story, which I have made into a nonfiction novel, is pieced together from a longtime college friend. I shared his father's story of the haunted barrister's bookcase, and now his story of what he heard and subsequently discovered about the history of the Victorian house he rented with two other college housemates. He now lives well away from this house and his tenant, and its tenant. The Talisman. Chapter 1. Chevalier climbed up the tree and surveyed the neighbor's yard below. Just yards away, a dog of, of, of indeterminate breed was sniffing the body of a dead animal on the ground. It was lying right outside the kitchen window of the Scott widow next door. The dog whimpered as if beset with a sadness Chevalier felt with, with a tartness that tasted of green apples from the local produce store. From her vantage point that early Saturday morning in the vast neighborhood outside Edgewood Park, she sensed a oneness with the dog. The loneliness of the sole animal as it surveyed the vast hollow of lost tinted the external landscape with a blueness that mirrored her own blueness within. Chevalier. I'm going to say Chevalier. It's, it's spelled C-H-E-V-A-L-I-E. So it's either she, you know, Chevalier or Chevalier. Peered for a closer look, then inched her way towards a higher limb. Her small athletic frame limber from her gymnastic days in fourth grade before she, she stopped when she entered middle school. Her approaching teen figure made her look gawky, according to her mother. Her distressed jeans caught a tree limb, distressed way before fashion dictated it was fashionable. There were just simply that they were just simply old and dotted with holes, as she only had two pairs, one in the wash. Furiously, she pulled at the twig that snagged the pants leg. Then it cracked, giving way to fall soundlessly below. The dog looked up at the sound. Her t-shirt, once white, was now a study in leaves and detritus from her efforts to climb and see. She was born curious and avid for the strangest of adventures, but she knew she, she would need to toss the outfit in the wash before her mother saw her. Her dark brown hair almost covered her deep, large legs, which widened with surprise as she fell across, as they fell across her face. I'm sorry, not legs. Ha! I'm sorry. Her dark brown hair almost covered her deep, dark, large eyes. What am I thinking, right? Which widened with surprise when... When, when they fell across her face. It was a dead cat. The dog made eye contact with Chivalry. We're going with Chivalry. His, his sorrow was as impenetrable as hers, as she realized in that awful moment the, in, the, the, the inconsequential death in an inconsequential, inconsequential neighborhood of an animal that had passed alone in a yard replete with the remains of an untended garden. A thick bump formed on her throat, formed in her throat, and she willed herself to swallow with what was what okay, swallow what she was seeing as the dog left the carcass untouched, heading to the owner's backyard for a drink of water. 
she followed the dog with her eyes and decided that, unlike her, the dog was perhaps loved. She surmised he was young, as she had not seen him last year when she entered eighth grade, or perhaps she did not notice him, as she was so deeply absorbed in a book that consumed her, her being and stretched her, her, knowledge, her knowingness to things that, that were before out of reach. The public school didn't teach what the book did. The dog lapped at a bright blue bowl sitting next to a matching toy panda. Pandas in blue were a rarity, but this one appeared special. It appeared cleaner from a distance than her shirt and jeans close up. Her mother was a neat freak, invented at the slightest evidence of dirt. She could tell cleanliness a mile away, it seemed. It tinged her with anxiety every time she re-entered the house, knowing of the woman's disappointment and, and resultant betrayal of people and things below perfection. A manifestation of her own inadequacy mirrored in her daughter's inability to stay clean. Thus, Chevely didn't trust herself to be clean enough, to be good enough. Her belief in herself was in what was inexorable. I'm sorry. Her belief in herself was inexorably intertwined with her mother's innate disapproval. Chevely, a version of her mother's incomplete self. The penumbra of incompleteness pushed Chevely out of the tree and onto the waiting ground. It was time to wash and try and try to remain clean again and perhaps be loved. Then she overheard the door pass. Then she overheard a door pass the wooden fence slam open, and the dog yelped. Chevrolet darted to her to her side of the fence and peered through the slats. A woman in a thick coat and polyester pants had emerged and struck the dog with a folded newspaper. Not painful, Chevrolet. Chevrolet surmised, but an insult to the dog, which was trying hard to please its owner. Chevrolet gritted her teeth at the injustice, as the woman with the curly dark hair in her fifties, plump and overfed no doubt, pulled the dog by the collar inside. Minutes later, the woman re-emerged with a black plastic trash bag. Chevrolet followed with her eyes and pushed at, at the old fence to part the slats to allow her a view. The woman picked up the dead cat and tossed it unceremoniously into the bag. A zip tie followed, and the life was done. An ode to a pet dead before old age and a dog reprimanded by virtue of its proximity. No burial, no words, no tears, just a plain plastic plastic bag and a zip tie. Chevrolet darted away, anger rolling up in her. It was time. Chapter 2 Into the room with grapes on a trellis, her wallpapered room, up on the third and highest floor, Chevrolet's wooden bed stood by the window, littered with signs of a girl turning towards books and a plain curiosity for things beyond the view of her window, a volume with a plain black cover, another showing a manga-style cover of a boy with dark hair, a music box overfilled with costume jewelry, but in plain sight a drawing of a hex sign, perhaps. Around the room there was femininity. Lace light blue curtains to allow the sun and magnify an otherwise uncertain sky. A dresser hand me down with combs and all sorts of dime store candy. A walk in closet and a bookcase filled with Nancy Drew. Across the bed near the door was a desk, small and pockmarked, but it appeared to be sturdy and almost oak. There sit open books from school, 
nondescript and exhausted. Then a larger, dark-covered one, obscured from full view by textbooks. It was a hard-bound book, the spine tinged in red, almost foreboding in size and thickness. Chevrolet entered, cleared her bed, and stacked stuff from the bed on the dresser nearby. She sat on the bed, pulled down the shades, and undressed, tossing the clothing into a hamper inside an open closet. She leaped into the shower of a club-footed tub, ancient in the adjacent bathroom. She unhooked her bra and studied the fracture breaks in the tile of the old bathroom as she did. She turned on the shower head and entered the spray. It soothed her as she allowed it to caress her face and arms. Visibly, her anger from watching the woman dissipated with the water. She clicked her tongue against her cheek as she showered. Click, click. In school, students turned to Chevrolet, seated towards the back when she did this clicking sound. It announced boredom, even disdain for the humdrum subject matter. A boy with ears bell-like, almost Disney, looked back at her from his front seat. Hearing her click her tongue to announce to others nearby that something was amiss, he studied the middle-aged teacher in a frayed sweater and pumps. Skirt hitched to the back. He gestured with his finger at the teacher's back, addressing the class with gestures. The teacher was scrutinizing someone's homework in front of the room as she leaned side sideways by her desk. Mickey Mouse, as he was affectionately called, finally couldn't stand the puzzled looks others gave him in exchange. Hey, look, she forgot to pull down her dress, he finally whispered. Click, click, went Chevrolet's tongue again on her cheek. She suppressed a huge smile as she watched the middle-aged teacher lean down to scribble corrections. Her skirt hiked up to reveal the edge of her panties. Laughter, hoots. The teacher looked up, surveying and scrutinizing the source of the laughter. Her dress, still hiked up from probably a hasty recent trip to the ladies' room, was moving around, making her look like a duck. Haste makes waste. They laughed, knowing Chevrolet, who was well-liked for her non-comforting attitude, and panache for dressing cheaply but with a certain style would not get in trouble. She might even be commended. Mrs. Homeless name, Miss Guamacut. Yes, Chevy Lynn. Chevy slid one foot out of her desk, stood up, and like a soldier came to attention. Mrs. Miss Guamacut turned her head sideways and puzzled. Yes, sweetie? Laughter. The teacher darted an angry look at Mickey Mouse, even though most of the students had laughed. Silence. Miss Chevrolet slapped her own butt to indicate the teacher's dress and back. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. McLomacut darted a look, bordering on embarrassment, then touched the back of her dress. Oops. She said as she tugged at the dress, pulling the edges off the, off the waistband of her panties. She turned bright red for all to see. The boys looked away, chuckling. The girls appeared shocked, some bored and some smiling at Chevy. Thank you, Chevy Lynn. The boys would have let me the boys would have let me go on if it weren't for you. Laughter. Silence. Mrs. Bazamacut reached for the hall phone by the classroom door to summon the vice principal. Chevy sat back down, placed both placed both her hands on her desk like a dutiful pupil. The students looked sideways, waiting for Blaine to begin. Some looked at the clock. 
Mickey Mouse stuck his tongue out at Chevrolet, and she offered back a middle finger when the teacher began talking on the phone to report the invisible culprit. To Chevrolet's classmates, she was a comfort, knowing their compass was correct, validating their growing anti-establishment bent towards adolescent individuality. In today's lingo, Chevrolet got it. However, she tricked them. Deeper inside her was a hollowness foreign to them all. Chevrolet harbored a pain indescribably stagnant, like the community pond next door, where the koi froze and never recovered from the winter freeze. A foreignness that could not be validated by others in the form of alienation by those she hoped would love her. This they did not share with her in their houndstooth vests and Sunday best as they drank Kool-Aid, Tang, and ordered egg creams from her in hard art. She was apart, yet remained apart. Thus, she remained in, inexorably alone. The shower shut off. Chevrolet stepped out, hugging a thick white towel, searching for slippers to hug her new clean feet. She forgot. She gritted her teeth at the imperfection, then clicked her tongue as if to say, Tisk, tisk. You idiot, you forgot again. She spotted them nearby and tossed the towel on the floor like a pathway to the soft slippers that awaited to hug her bare toes. She stepped onto the towel, reaching for the slippers, and turned to toss the towel into a hamper. Slam. The house door next door again. She paused and she paused mid-stride, dropped the towel. The dog yelped. Hector, the woman yelled. She clicked her tongue, but now her face became a solid mass of steel. Her jaw worked, and rage fluttered in her eyes as she parted the, the frilly curtains of her bed by her bed. The heavy-set polyester maiden was back again. This time, she kicked the dog with a sneakered foot. The dog cowered by the back fence as the woman took the dog's bowl and re-entered unseen. Chevrolet's eyes mo moistened with pity, but her rage worked her jaws tight. Two emotions in one face. Quickly, she dressed in a, a t-shirt and hearts and a pink hoodie and sweatpants printed with the Nike logo, and then sat at her desk, tying her sneakers. Silence. Chevrolet pushed the textbooks aside, revealing the black hardbound book. On the cover, a pentagram where the snake was embossed. The book appeared old and frayed, but sturdy like a brick. You bitch, she hissed. She hissed. Distracted by her own internal turmoil, she absently, she abs absently leafed quickly through the book, then slammed it shut. She darted the clothes hamper, retrieved the wet towel she had just discarded, and turned it, inspecting it. Laying it flat on the wooden floor, she lay face up on the, on the towel, shimmying close to the bed. She reached under and grabbed a board, a game board of sorts, but it was not. The board was homemade from a carton box, unfolded and cut. It was designed to be covered in felt, which Chevrolet purchased at the fabric store downtown. She studied the home-sewn fabric the home-sewn felt pockets, touching each one almost in a caress, all seven of them. There was a bulge in each pocket, which was wit what was inside. Each one was precious and powerful. She dipped her finger in one of the seven pockets and felt. A felt. The particular, this particular one was labeled as some foreign symbol that was in, indecipherable. Her fingers revealed a ring with a blue gem, sapphire. She examined it and placed it back into the felt pocket. She reached for the notebook on her dresser and furiously wrote until she heard a car motor stop and a car door open. 
She peered through her bedroom window at the driveway. A woman with strawberry blonde hair in her 40s exited a late model Audi. The woman looked up and furrowed her brow and slammed the door shut. Chevrolet ducked, hoping her mother had not seen her. Quickly, Chevrolet folded the felt-covered board and slid it under the bed, crumpling the wet towel. A draft announced the front door below opening. Chevy Lynn! Chevrolet dashed to the, ham to the hamper, tossed the towel, and shut the closet door. She opened her bedroom door and dashed down the steps two at a time. What's up, Mom? Chapter 3 Lynn Thayer stood in the foyer, clad in a navy blue tailored pantsuit. She appeared irritated and pursed her lips as Chevrolet descended. I told you to take the trash out this morning, did you? Good afternoon, Mom. Lynn replied by straightening Chevrolet's hoodie, though it appeared straight enough. How was school? It's Memorial Day, remember? Uh, okay. Did you do chores, or... I study for exams. I see. When are they? Wednesday. Good. I'm tired. Closed two houses today. Chevrolet nodded, patiently waiting for a reprimand. Lynn dug into her handbag. I need you to run an errand for me at the local cleaners and then stop by the supermarket. Can I drive? Of course not. You're not even 15 yet. Here. Chevrolet eyed the $50 bill and became pensive. Here's the list. I can't carry all that. Your bike's got a basket in front. Your bike's got a basket front and back, like an old lady. Go, I have to cook. Chevrolet stuffed the money into her sweatshirt and looked down. I need new jeans for summer. Everybody, we'll shop when your brother gets home. Chevrolet's brother was already in college. She, she frowned, and anger swept her features again. Favorite is the older brother, the, the good Nick, the poster boy's son. The entire summer would be spent again, she thought, curring to his needs. What are you waiting for? Chevrolet dashed out the front door and walked to the side of the house where her old bicycle leaned against the fence. Anger bloomed in her heart like a flock of crows taking flight. She spotted the large black hefty bag, the trash, and realized she forgot to take it to the curb. Her anger dropped, replaced by the anxiety. Her stomach fluttered. She grabbed the large hefty bag and visions of the dig cat hours earlier in a white bag and tie next door flashed before her. She turned, looked back at the house, and saw her mother through the kitchen window, filling a teapot with water, her back to her. Back to her. Quickly now, Chevrolet grabbed the trash bag with one hand and the bicycle bars in the other. She darted towards the curb, straining with her load, and spotted the white tied bag on the curb outside the Scots' house, waiting for the next morning's pickup, the dead cat. She approached with both hands grasping a large black hefty and plopped it right next to the bag where the dead cat lay inside. She grabbed the bag with the dead cat, watching the front windows of the, of the widow Edith. No one. She dashed to the front door and untied the bag, wrinkling her nose as she peered inside. She poured the dead cat, now stiff, on Edith's front doormat. She heard Hector whine inside the house, looked at the nearby window, and saw him looking out, watching her. She put one finger off, as if to single, as if to, single to wait. The dog panted, tongue out, tail wagging. Chevrolet turned away, ran down the steps, and grabbed her bicycle, pedaling furiously down the street. As she pedaled, she surveyed the neighborhood, a grin on her face. 
Okay, guys. Let's continue with chapter four, and then we're going to stop after that. Mrs. Scott walked out the back door, carrying freshly cooked ground turkey still steaming in the dog's bowl. She executed a look of guilt mixed with pity for nudging Hector, perhaps too hard, the only remaining memory of her deceased husband. Two years had gone by, and the last present from him was the brown lab, a puppy at the time. Now Hector was too, whining, it appeared, for having lost his friend Chia, the 16-year-old orange cat. The screen door screeched as she opened it with her elbow. It needed oiling. Like the rest of the old house, the gutter and the garden needed mending. She knew she was getting old, and her son wanted her to move closer to him, but she loved Connecticut. Unlike Fort Lauderdale, with, with its eternal summers and humidity, crocodiles and mosquitoes, not to mention the change of supermarkets and shopping places, she wanted to remain where she was most comfortable. It was home where she was. She held the screen door, called out to Hector, and he emerged from the living room, where he was looking out the window, watching and whining intently. While she had no idea, but would have to investigate in the man, if the mailman, Ralph, was out there. She looked forward to his visits, as he was a former high school chum of her husband. He didn't look that bad, she thought. She knew Ralph was a widower. The dog lapped at the boiled turkey, wagging his tail, and Edith Scott was happy. In her mind, it made up for nudging him with her foot and blaming him for not watching Chia more closely. How could he? He was only a dog, and dogs do what dogs do. Play. When the cat began to slow down, she dreaded the day Chia would need to be put down, and coming home to tell Hector Chia wasn't coming back. However, the grace of God provided, and she, actually, Hector, had found Chia dead. He'd whined and howled like a wolf in mourning, and she looked out the window to see what was up. Shocked but relieved she didn't have to bring her she didn't have to bring her in. She couldn't bring herself to bury the cat, let alone take her to the vet for cremation. How much would it cost? She dialed the phone, hoping she could afford it. Then the sweet voice of the new veterinary assistant came on to tell her they had a discount on cremations. When she queried about the fee, she almost had a stroke. Well, Edith thought, what can I do? So she emerged with a kitchen bag, which she had which she had put catnip in for Chia to enjoy in the, in, in the nether life and placed her in the bag before Hector had a chance to do what dogs usually do, play with dead things. Thank goodness Chia wasn't a squirrel. He would have torn her apart, as he was an intelligent and curious dog. As she watched him finish his food with gusto, she walked to the side of the house that separated her from the Connors next door, who, she had, you know, who had a wrought iron fence. Very pretty and upscale, matching their Georgian house, with the black gables and six-bedroom red brick home. She gave the house a cursory glance, already knowing it was perfect, unlike her home, which she felt appeared shabby and small in comparison, even though it was a vintage Victorian. Edith sauntered up the front, surveyed the street in her customary way to take in who was already out. She paused on the sidewalk, not meaning to stare as the mailman walked toward her house. She smiled inwardly, appearing coy and not too anxious. She noted the Thayer girl, with the first name of a car, was already on her bike, pedaling furiously away, undoubtedly off from, from school or playing hooky. She recalled the mother was a realtor who would come in handy if she chose to move. Trying to find an excuse to linger outside, she looked at her brushes, as if to inspect the hydrangeas she'd forgotten to prune last winter. As Ralph approached, 
mailbag filled with, ma- with, with trappings of his trade. Then, as he got closer, he pulled out her mail, junk and all. He was in the act of handing it to her instead of placing it in, in her mailbox. When his smile turned down at the corners, he froze as his glance gave way to stare past Edith. Hey, Edith, don't mean to pry. Edith chuckled uncomfortably, her hands her hands straying to her spring coat, which was partially open to reveal her house dress. Shoot, Ralph. What's that on your doorstep? And so that ends the, the preview. Uh, coming from Beyond the Fray Publishing, more true horror stories from the author of The Way Through the Woods and Haunted Heirlooms on Amazon where books are sold. Okay. So there you have it. That was the completion of Haunted Heirlooms. Let me get back over here. There we go. We're back. All right. That was the completion of Haunted Heirlooms. And uh, it was a great book. Loved it. Looking forward to the next read. I don't know if it's going to be this particular book or this uh, other book that is due to come out in December that uh, Anna's got lined up or something else. So I'm going to start searching tonight and see what we can find out for the ho- you know, see what I can find to read for the holidays and things like that. But I want to thank you guys for listening to this book. It was, it was a fun book to read. And getting back to, uh, let me grab some water, which I don't normally do during shows. Hang on. Got to wet my whistle. <laughs> getting back to here. Yeah, antiques. Antiques are, are interesting. A lot of cases that we've been on, quite a few actually, over the last 20, 25 years have, Involved antiques. There was one in particular in uh, Vacaville. Excuse me a second here. That we did, and uh, the woman had bought a um, what do they call them? A, a clothes dresser? Well, a dress, uh, a clothes closet. But there's a name for it. You know those big old credenza closets. And uh, she had bought it from an antique store, and she had a couple things going on in her house. But um, she would hear <sighs> screams at night. When she was sleeping, you know, in her room. But the thing was, she lived, uh, the, the walls on the house were thin, so she lived near a, like, a, a walking trail. So our first suspicion was that they could hear somebody outside, maybe out hanging out, drinking or whatever, you know, and partying. But uh, it turns out the, the psychic we had on staff at that point, first thing she did when she walked into this bedroom was said, oh, my God, there's blood. And I said, what are you talking about? There's blood all over. It's that thing. It's that. It's that. Shit, that closet. There's blood all over the closet. And so what she saw was that, and and she she continued and she goes. He chopped them up. He chopped them up and he put them in the drawers. He put them in the bottom drawers. And we we cross verified and found out that this thing had had had, had been uh, built like in the 1800s and it, and it came to this antique shop. So they really didn't know the history of what had happened to it. But that's what she surmised was that. Um, somebody had chopped up their children and hid the bodies in this in the drawers of this 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 clothing thing, you know. So that's it's hard to tell somebody that you know we walk into somebody's house and well we we think we know what's going on here and you're going to have to get rid of this thing you probably spent spent a couple hundred dollars on or a thousand dollars even. And so she did, and uh, there were no other problems in the house after that. Don't know what she did with it, but uh, I know I know what ended up out the door. So it, you run into stuff like that with antiques, just like I did buying the antiquities. You know, I, 
you know, if, if, that was one of my thoughts when, when I was buying the stuff was that, you know, there could be a possibility that something came along with the antiques that I bought. And of course there was, and not to mention what was already here in the house from the, um, from the dining room set, right? There's always one in my dining, like I was talking about that, there was one in my dining room that just hangs out in my dining room. It's peaceful, but I mean, it still hangs out there. And there's other things in my house too that, you know, um, I remember uh, when I was first starting to ghost hunt and film the show and uh, California Hunt show and seeing this, this what looked like a man out the corner of my eye when I would walk from my living room to my kitchen along the divider area. And it looked like he was jumping out from my dining room like he wanted to grab me. And it scared the heck out of me. So I brought in one of my psychics, you know, from the psychics from the team who explained to me that uh, because this was old river bottom here. Okay, the, Sacra the, the American River is a few blocks away to, to my uh, south. And so she explained that this gentleman had been a fisherman who had, because the river, you know, was this far. And so he had been fishing and he fell and broke his head open on a rock and had died from bleeding to death. Didn't realize he was dead. And so he was in my house and he, he, he had gone mad. You know, so that was in my house. I haven't had any experience with him in a, in a long time. But that goes to the stories I'm telling too. If you if you follow my my YouTube shorts now, I'm telling stories about what it was like as a kid because I was I, I was like I was I had abilities as a kid. I still have them, but they're not as opened up as they were. So I had abilities as a kid. So I would see stuff in my house all the time. So it all goes back to that, you know. And then getting in with a ghost team like I did, oh, it started to open up the abilities again. And so I started to see these things and experience these things in my house. So yeah. But, you know, if you run into stuff like that. Anyway, it's time. It's time to call it a night. And tomorrow starts our week of shows. And we have a great, great, interesting lineup this week. Tomorrow we are going to have Reed Booth on with us. And he is known as the Killer Bee Guy. And he has been hunting down and I'm not going to say killing killer bees, but, you know, dealing with the killer bee problem. The African ISB problem for years, and this gentleman's been on Discovery and different shows talking about this, you know, and, and even different news shows and stuff all, all over the United States talking about this issue. I know that there that these bees have now infiltrated since 1955. These bees have now been able to infiltrate the lower 48 states, and it's dangerous. And he has a lot of stories to tell. He's got a wonderful TikTok account that he takes you out live with him on these things where, where he's taking care of these you know try, trying to help these people with the bees okay the whole point of the of these africanized bees was that they were supposed to make better 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 and better honey and more amounts of honey and it started in brazil and somehow they got loose and then up they came you know up they came in, into us through south america and then in, into the into Arizona and New Mexico and all that, you know, so they're making their way across the U.S. But it's an interesting story. It's also a very scary story because they, they, they do attack and and they, they, they're not like a honeybee, you know, they're, they're not docile. Even though we think bees are bees will sting anyway, you know, honeybees and whatnot, these these, these things are really, really packed. I don't want to say pack animals or not animals, but pack insects. So when they do decide to... Um, swarm and come and come at you they come at you in the thousands so it's going to be interesting to talk with him and we may even be if he's out on the job 
we may be broadcasting live from the job he's out on, so you'll get to see what he actually does. So it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to try and do this interview tomorrow. He may not get called out, but he's on call all the time and he's very busy. So if he gets called out, he's gonna take us with us with him. So that'll be kind of fun, fun and interesting at the same time, and also scary. So that'll be tomorrow at 6:30 p.m. Pacific, normal time that we're on the air. Anyway, if you like the show uh, tonight. Um, we do this every Sunday where we, where we read from a ghost-related book or, or a, you know, you know a, a supernatural-related book. Uh, share it with five people. If you didn't like it, be sure to share it with, with five people you don't like. Equal opportunity here. We're, trying to, we're just trying to get the word out about this show. The more people, the merrier, right? And uh, also, uh, I, I appreciate each and every one of you. And again, a quick reminder, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you hear, be sure to hit that follow button. Uh, same thing with uh, YouTube, if, if you like what you hear you know, today or saw, well, not so much saw, but heard <laughs> today, um, hit that subscribe button. And uh, Ghosty Gal, Ghosty Gal on Instagram. Join me over at Instagram because I'm posting different stuff over there too as well. TikTok, I'm posting all kinds of things over there. So check out TikTok. That's under California Haunts. It's all lowercase. All right. You can also follow us on Twitter. Okay. That is Cal Haunts. It's hard for me to remember all this stuff. I have to have a list, right? Cue cards. But anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. And I will see you all tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific with the Killer Bee Guy. Have a good night, everybody. Except I don't have my buttons lined up. Have a good night, everybody.